Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I'll be your host for this episode. For today's international episode we are headed back to Canada to cover a case that shocked the entire world. It was not a large body count or a famous victim, but a Hollywood-like plot twist that captured everyone's attention. But before we get into the episode, let's cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me on X and Instagram at true underscore blue underscore crime. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Harrowing images of helicopters transporting people from the rooftop of the American Embassy in Saigon, South Vietnam, in April of 1975, marked the end of a decade-long war that cost the lives of almost 6,000 American troops. As public support for the war in Vietnam hit an all-time low in the early 1970s, politicians and military leaders began planning an exit strategy for the thousands of American service members and civilians left in the country. On April 29, 1975, the final part of that plan was put in action as a large mass of North Vietnamese soldiers marched on the capital. Within 24 hours, over 7,000 American troops and allied within 24 hours, over 7,000 Americans and allied South Vietnamese were evacuated from the city before North Vietnamese troops forced the surrender of the U.S. allied South Vietnamese government. The largest proxy war of the larger Cold War, the decade of fighting had been sold as a necessary means to stop the spread of the evils of communism. Some would argue it was more of a military experiment that allowed the world's superpowers to flex their conventional muscles and fund their ever-growing arms race. Regardless of the rationale for the fighting, when American troops left South Vietnam in force in the spring of 1975, it started one of the largest humanitarian crises of the 20th century. After having risked everything to support the free state of South Vietnam by aligning with the U.S., the people of South Vietnam faced harsh treatment at the hands of their new rulers from the North. Imprisonment, re-education, torture, and state-sponsored murders were rampant in the months and years following the fall of Saigon, and many citizens risked it all in a bid to escape the atrocities being committed against their families and neighbors. Entire families climbed into barely buoyant vessels and took to the open ocean with the hopes of being picked up by a humanitarian ship or landing on safe ground somewhere. Many didn't survive these voyages, but for the lucky ones that did, countries such as America, Australia, Canada, and many other Western countries took in over a million refugees in the years following the war. One of those families, the Pan family, found themselves safe from the horrors of their homeland after settling in Ontario, Canada in 1979. They welcomed a family and were soon living a dream life compared to what they had escaped. They were hardworking, thrifty, and beyond strict as parents, but their dream life would come to a terrible end on a fateful night in 2010. This is the story of the Pan family. 
Hui Han Pan, known as Han, was born in Vietnam, obtained an education, and fled the country four years after the fall of Saigon. He arrived in Canada in 1979 as a political refugee and soon met another Vietnamese immigrant, Bic Ha Pan. The young couple were married in the early 1980s and settled into their life in Markham, Ontario, a city outside Toronto populated by a large number of Asian families. Bic and Han obtained work at a large car part manufacturing plant. Han learned the trade of tool and die making while Bic worked on the assembly line for the auto parts. While their salaries were not high by Western standards, the couple were frugal and while welcoming two children, daughter Jennifer in 1986 and son Felix in 1989, they saved enough money to purchase a middle-class home and two luxury vehicles. Studies have shown that first-generation immigrant families often hold tight onto the values of their homeland, and this often causes issues with the second generation. The children of the immigrants usually attend schools where they are taught English, learn about personal freedom and individuality, and make friends with non-immigrant children who share different values. Meanwhile at home, the immigrant parents often struggle with English and hold tight to the values their parents taught them. For many Southeast Asian families, this includes the concept of the family as a single unit. While many non-immigrant Canadian and American children are encouraged to enjoy a certain level of freedom, autonomy, and individual identity, Southeast Asian children are often raised under a strict single family identity. This means that any positive or negative action by a member of the family reflects on the entire family. As a result of the single family image, Households often had strict rules and heavy expectations placed upon the younger children. In the case of the Pan family, this included a heavy dose of schooling, arts, and activities that were meant to bring pride to the family unit. Jessica was pressured from a young age to perform. This included piano and figure skating lessons and competitions starting at four years old. Training in these areas occurred daily, and Jennifer was expected to get nothing but the highest grades in school at the same time. Jennifer's parents had dreams of their daughter becoming an Olympic figure skater for Team Canada, but those dreams were dashed when Jennifer tore a ligament in her knee at the age of eight. Despite the Olympic dream being ended, the strict upbringing continued as Jennifer entered high school and played flute in the band, and it was well known that her parents picked her up after school, forbid her from dating, and expected nothing less than straight A's and a complete following of their rules. Han was described as a tiger dad, pushing both Jennifer and Felix to achieve greatness and not accepting any excuses for failure. Bick was said to not be as aggressive, but went along with the strict parenting. Most strict parenting structures cease to exist when a child becomes an adult and he or she obtains some level of independence, but by outward appearances, Jennifer continued to live under the oppressive rules of her parents into her early 20s. Most of her friends had never known her to attend a high school dance, a college party, and by 22, she had never been drunk. Jennifer's parents believed their hard work and strict guidelines had paid off. Jennifer brought home report cards that showed straight A's, and she was accepted into Ryerson University to continue her education after high school. So we'll take a quick break here just to talk about Jennifer's upbringing. I covered it uh, on a rather surface level. The information I got about the Southeast Asian families and their single family unit, that actually came from a study that was done in Norway, but it, it pretty much reflects what the Southeast Asian families ran into in most Western civilizations. So when I talk about this family unit, uh, basically 
from what I understood from the research, Southeast Asian families are multi-generational and anything that is done, any accomplishment or any shortcoming reflects on the entire family. And that's much different than in, a, in Western civilization. Now, we do have cases where you have a, let's say, a school shooter situation. And of course, people will look at the family to say, how did this kid turn out the way that they did? But for the most part, the blame for the school shooting, the anything like that will come down on the kid. It won't necessarily negatively affect the entire family, the, the grandparents, brothers, sisters, mom and dad. Whereas in Southeast Asian families, again, if, if one child succeeds and, and becomes this Olympic figure skater, that's accolades passed upon the entire family. And if a child has shortcomings, that is a black mark to the entire family. So it's just a very different structure system. And that's why a lot of people look at this and can't understand why there is such a drive. And, you know, nowadays we call it living vicariously through your children. Uh, we see this often with whether it be a, a sports parents that want their child to excel at the sport that they played when they were in high school or something along those lines. But usually in American civilization, that living vicariously through your child is usually limited to just one sport. Whereas in Jennifer's case, she had to excel at piano, at band, at school, at figure skating till she blew out her knee. It was anything that they put her in, she had to be the best of the best at it. They wouldn't accept anything less than that. And that is a lot of pressure on a child. And, and of course, when you're doing that at the sacrifice of regular social growth that occurs by dating, by attending dances, by attending parties, that the balance between being able to be a teenager and a child and learning some of the social stuff, obviously that's being sacrificed for this extreme focus on the arts and academics. And again, it's not something that I think Jennifer's parents would have looked at as they were doing wrong. This is, again, how they were raised. This was you excelled so that you brought pride to the family and they were going to do everything they could give their children every opportunity they could to do this but at the same time they didn't realize they were denying jennifer and felix this quote-unquote normal teenage life but what they did not know was that that pressure had broken jennifer and starting in high school she fabricated one life for her parents while juggling a very different life in reality Jennifer was not getting straight A's. While she did get an A in band, she was roughly a C student in many classes, and by 12th grade she had failed calculus and lost her admission to the university. She was also secretly dating a teenager named Daniel Chi Kuang Wong through part of high school and beyond. Her facade continued after high school. Fearing the wrath of her parents for losing her college admission, Jennifer pretended to go to college while she secretly worked part-time jobs, visited her boyfriend, and filled notebooks with fake notes to fool her parents into thinking she was attending classes. Jennifer claimed to have won full-ride scholarships, so there were no bills associated with her schooling, 
and when it came time to graduate, she told her parents the school only gave each graduate one ticket, and she didn't want to choose which parent got to attend, so she gave the ticket to a friend. Without a real college degree, Jennifer couldn't get a professional job in her field of study and opted to continue lying to her parents, claiming she got into graduate school for pharmacology at the University of Toronto. The program would then buy her more time to pretend to go to school and appease her parents. She was even able to convince her parents to allow her to stay at a classmate's place during the week to save her from driving, but in reality, she was staying with her boyfriend, Daniel. The lie started to crumble after Jennifer told her parents she was volunteering at a local hospital, but they never saw her with a uniform or a hospital ID. Bick followed her daughter to work one day and realized Jennifer had been lying to them the entire time. The entirety of the lie was revealed. Not only had Jennifer not graduated from college, she hadn't even graduated from high school. Han wanted to throw Jennifer out of the house, but Bick convinced him that Jennifer should stay at the house and finish high school and then start college, as had been the plan all along. And in reality, we'll talk about it later, but she's actually supposedly, according to Han, given a choice at this point. She can stay in the family unit at which point she is going to graduate high school, go to college, do all the stuff that she claimed she had done, but there's going to be very strict rules placed on her. Or she had the option of leaving the family unit and going to live with Daniel and kind of living her own life. And we'll talk about that more down the road as what a major crossroad this was in her life and the decision that she made. So Jennifer chose to stay in the house, and she was allowed to live there, but was under strict rules not to see Daniel or even speak to him. She was only allowed to leave the house to work her part-time job, and Jennifer was able to get a phone her parents didn't know about and communicate with Daniel during this time. But the tribulations surrounding the restrictive relationship caused problems, and Daniel broke up with Jennifer and started dating another woman. After finding out about Daniel's new relationship, Jennifer got so jealous that she concocted a story and told Daniel she had been sexually assaulted by a group of men who had been sent to her house by Daniel's new girlfriend. Unsurprisingly, this tactic didn't work. When I mentioned before the, the lack of the balance in Jennifer's life, not that people who have more social experience don't do this kind of stuff, because we do see this, but... Jennifer's only had this one boyfriend. This is her one escape from this world that she's been brought up in. And when she loses that, I mean, A, it's going to be a lot harder for her to find some guy that's understanding about her situation. And not to mention she's living under these very restrictive rules in the house that don't allow her to date. So she's beyond desperate to maintain this relationship with, with Daniel. And... Again, I just I have to believe that the lack of understanding of of simple social dynamics of breakups and moving on and all that kind of stuff is partially going to fuel her plan here to try to convince Daniel that his new girlfriend is harassing her and not just harassing her, but sending guys over to sexually assault her. She would later claim that she got a bullet in the mail, just a single bullet mailed to her house, addressed to her from this new girlfriend of Daniel's and something to the effect of if she didn't leave Daniel alone, then this bullet was meant for her. And obviously this is all gonna be 
proven to have nothing to do with Daniel's new girlfriend. But again, Jennifer is desperate. Her life spiraled out of control not too long ago. She makes this choice to stay with her family, which is going to make the relationship between her and Daniel much more difficult, eventually leading to Daniel dumping her. It's said he started dating a younger woman. Jennifer's like 22 or 23, so I assume a younger woman at this point is someone who's 18, 19, 20 years old. But uh, still, there's a lot of obviously jealousy going on on, with Jennifer at this point. Then, on the evening of November 8, 2010, Jennifer and her parents were at home and everything changed. Felix, her brother, was actually off at university, and he was studying to become an engineer, so he was the only member of the family not present. Jennifer said goodnight to her parents and then walked upstairs to her room. At some point that night, men entered the family home and woke the three family members up with guns pointed at them. Jennifer had her wrist tied behind her back, and then she was tied to the railing of the stairs. Her parents were taken down to the basement by the men who were demanding cash from Bick and Han. Han told them he had only $60 in his wallet, and several gunshots were fired in the basement, and the men fled the home. Jennifer was able to access her cell phone and called 911 to report the home invasion robbery and the likely death of her parents. And had both of her parents died, it's possible the story might have stopped there. But miraculously, Han survived being shot in the back and the face. He had lost consciousness after being shot, and the shooter, believing that he had killed the man, turned the gun to Bick. The shooter fired three shots into Bick, one in the back, one that went into the back of her neck, and then he fired a point-blank shot into her head, killing her instantly. In a true testament to the human body's ability to survive, Han was able to gain the wherewithal to escape the basement and run to a neighbor's house for help. He collapsed at the neighbor's house and was rushed to the hospital, where he slipped into a coma for several days. Meanwhile, police responded and freed Jennifer from her bindings. Her story was somewhat believable, but there was some evidence initially to indicate she was not just the lucky victim of a home invasion robbery in which her mother died and her father was fighting for his life. The crime itself was believed to have been motivated by the idea that Jennifer's parents enjoyed an upper-middle-class lifestyle and did not shy from flaunting their wealth with luxury vehicles and a nice house. From the outside, it would appear the family may have had a good amount of money. And so this is something, again, that we talked about earlier, is this is something that's very important in Southeast Asian families. And it's not seen as being gaudy or flaunting, I guess, in any way. It's just there's certain status symbols that if you can achieve them, it means you're bringing pride to your family unit. And that includes, in this case, these luxury vehicles and the nice house. Again, it's not as if they're out there purposely flaunting these items. It's just more of a purchasing them, owning them, because you've achieved a certain level of of financial success. But from the outside, if you're looking at people who have luxury vehicles and a nice house, you're assuming that they have a lot of money. But to plan a robbery of this level usually involves the existence of and knowledge of a large amount of high-value items or cash in the home. While Han and Bick had good jobs, they did not own a business that dealt in cash, such as a restaurant, and there were no known rumors about the family stockpiling large amounts of valuable items. And we've talked about this before. Uh, We had the case out of, I want to say it was Alabama, where the 
guy broke into the World War II veteran's home thinking he had this vault filled with gold and cash and stuff. So it's not very common for suspects just randomly be driving down the street, see a house and go, oh, I think there's money in there. Let's go in with guns and, and try to get cash out of that house. A, a lot of the times these neighborhoods, the houses are roughly all the same size, look roughly the same. So you're you're not going to be able to differentiate who has money and who doesn't, or who I should say who stockpiles money and who doesn't. So usually you'd have to have some idea that a certain house for some reason contains a large amount of valuable items that are easy for you to take. And criminals have made mistakes before, so this could have been a mistake by the criminals, but the treatment of Jennifer left police perplexed. The suspects were so brutal that they executed or tried to execute two people over $60 in cash, but yet they left an eyewitness to the crimes alive. Jennifer had also not been blindfolded or had her vision obscured in any way, so she would have been a very solid eyewitness for the police. And the idea that the suspects had tied her so loosely that she could access her phone in her pocket and dial 911 also did not sit well with investigators. The family did have some valuable items to include jewelry and electronics, and the suspects seemed more focused on killing the parents than they did removing anything of value, making their crime a very high risk and very low reward incident. Investigators had their suspicions about the case, but kept them close to the vest for a few days until Han came out of his coma and told them some valuable information. Han recalled seeing one of the suspects and Jennifer talking in soft tones, as if they were working together during the incident. This flew in the face of how anyone would act if unknown people came into your house in the middle of the night with guns and threatened you and your family. Armed with this information, investigators interrogated the now more suspect than victim, Jennifer, and she cracked under the pressure. She admitted she was in on the murder of her mother and the attempted murder of her father, and she outlined the entire criminal plan for the investigators. It began after Jennifer made her first attempt to have her parents killed in the spring of 2010. She had approached an old high school classmate who was rumored to have committed several crimes, including armed robbery, and offered him $200 to kill her parents. He allegedly turned on the offer, but directed her to someone he knew that would do it for $1,500, but that plan fell through as well. A few months later, Daniel and Jennifer got back together, and Daniel used some of his contacts he knew through his low-level drug dealing while managing a pizza restaurant to set up the crime. Daniel obtained a secret cell phone and SIM card for Jennifer and put her in touch with a man he knew as Homeboy, who was in fact Lenford Roy Crawford. Lenford used his list of criminal associates to hire Eric Sean Cardi, known as Sniper, and David Melveganem. The three agreed to carry out the crime for $10,000. Daniel and Jennifer did not have the money up front, but Jennifer calculated she would receive around half a million dollars if both her parents were killed, and she would pay the men from her inheritance, and then Daniel and her would be free to live together. Digital forensic evidence showed that Jennifer had texted the men the code game time on the night of the murders and she had snuck downstairs and unlocked the front door so the men could enter without making any sound. The plan had always been for the men to kill Jennifer's parents, stage the scene to look like a home invasion, and then leave. However, they didn't take any items for fear of the items being traced back to them and they were expected to get paid for their crimes out of the inheritance money. While it's likely 
the police would have eventually figured out the truth behind the crime, the fact that Han survived was both amazing and it helped speed up the investigation. And we've talked about this on several different cases before too, is people make these grand criminal plans and they think that they can fool the police. And there have been instances where investigators, the police have either been fooled or there just has not been enough evidence to prove that somebody committed a crime. But these are a bunch of early 20-year-old, basically kids, that are trying to plan the perfect murder. And they make quite a few mistakes. And I don't just mean the mistake of, of Han surviving, because as I said, I think the police would have figured out that this was not just a home invasion robbery if Han had died as well. Because there was just too many things about the scene that didn't make sense to them and I would often run into this when I was processing crime scenes or investigating crimes is once you've done several years of processing crime scenes or investigating these crimes, there's certain things that will just jump out as out of place. And I knew the outcome of this story before I started researching it. I've heard it presented on several different podcasts, but even the first time I heard it, there are certain parts that just didn't make sense to me. And I questioned, I think, the delivery. They might not have given all the information. But when I found out that Jennifer was not blindfolded and that when Jennifer was tied to a banister and left alive while her parents were killed, it just didn't make sense to me. That's If you didn't know this person, if, if these suspects didn't know Jennifer... Why wasn't she shot and killed? Why wasn't she taken down to the basement? Why wasn't she blindfolded? And why was she left with bindings loose enough that she could get to her phone? And why wasn't her phone taken away from her? These these are all one of these mistakes, I guess, or, or one difference. Let's say she's brought down to the basement, but her phone's not taken away from her. She's brought down to the basement, and for whatever reason, she's not shot, I guess there's some aspects of it that you could look at and say okay she they felt bad for her whatever it might be but when you've put it all together that she's separated from her parents she's not blindfolded she's only tied up enough that she can't quite move around but she can still get to her phone it all just reeks of the crime not making sense and then you throw in the fact that we've and we just talked about this with the Ryan Waller and Heather Kwan case is when you're looking at motive the evidence from the scene will always tell you what the most likely motive was for the case and in this case although the home is looked is staged to look like a home invasion the actual crime that seems to be the motivating factor for this is the murder and in reality a couple guys coming into a house in the middle of the night, at random, finding two people to commit a staged home invasion, but in reality executing or trying to execute the two adults of the home. You know, that's what the scene was telling the investigation crime scene technicians happened. That's not a motive that normally makes sense. That's not something people are willing to do. As I mentioned, that's extremely high risk. You're killing two people or trying to kill two people and gaining next to nothing for the actual crime itself. You're obviously going to assume, and in this case it's going to be true, that their motivation is to kill them to collect money that Jennifer was going to pay them later. 
but from the scene itself you're not seeing indicators that the crime was committed in order to obtain a large amount of money directly through the crime there's obviously an indirect payment going on here and when i say directly we have cases and we'll cover them at some point where the same exact situation will happen except it'll be the manager of a bank and the people will hold the bank manager hostage or the bank manager's family hostage i should say while the bank manager drives to the bank and opens up the vault and basically it's a bank robbery using a home invasion to further that crime when investigators look at something like that they say okay this makes sense we've got somebody breaking into a very targeted house to take people hostage at gunpoint to then further the crime to hopefully clear out a bank vault like you can connect all the dots everything makes sense and eventually if people are killed they can be killed because now they want to cover up that crime in the end but you can basically go from a to b to c to d all the way through these dots and say everything that these criminals did made sense their plan makes sense whereas in this case you're going okay they targeted the house fine they went into that house thinking there's money that's fine then they execute two people leaving one person alive flee the house it is staged to look like somewhat of a home invasion robbery but nothing of value is really taken so at the end of the day you've got a major crime committed for what appears to be almost no gain so as much as these guys tried to think out everything to me i'm just even shocked that they did this while jennifer was home and i know she didn't have a lot of availability to be away from the house and maybe they thought that if she was away from the house when this happened it would look more suspicious for her but the fact that she was there was ultimately the downfall the fact that her father survived was able to see her whispering and talking softly with the suspects and then all the stuff that should have happened to her that didn't indicated that she was in on the crime so again this is just one of those cases where people think they've planned out the perfect crime they they probably sit around and talk about it convince themselves that this is going to fool the police that it's going to look like this terrible crime that Jennifer's a victim of she's going to collect the life insurance on her parents she's going to be able to sell the house with the proceeds and that's where the 500,000 I think if you added up the life insurance the value of the house their property the cash they had in the bank I think the Pan family had about a million dollars and obviously she was going to have to split that with Felix but she was fine getting half a million dollars not having her restrictive rules from her parents anymore and then her and daniel could start this new life with with this money and with jennifer's confession she was placed under arrest on november 22nd two weeks after the murder of her mother and the attempted murder of her father six months later arrest warrants were issued for the other four men involved eric daniel and david were arrested in april of 2011 and lenford was arrested in may of 2011. All five were put on trial in March of 2014. The prosecution presented Jennifer's confession as well as digital evidence of text messages between Jennifer and Daniel prior to the crime. And so again, not only do we not have a very well thought out crime, the, all the people involved, the police are able to find text messages between these people planning out the crime, talking about it on the day of the crime. So, and this is where I say even if, han hadn't survived 
I think eventually police were going to figure this all out because these young criminals did not have enough stuff covered to protect themselves from the investigation. The suspects, including Jennifer, pled not guilty, and the prosecution used the evidence, the circumstances of the crime, and witnesses to tell the story of an oppressed but criminal-minded Jennifer and her desire to rid herself of her parents in order to live rule-free with Daniel. Jennifer, Daniel, David, and Lenford were all found guilty of first-degree murder and attempted murder and were sentenced to life in prison with a mandatory non-parole period of 25 years. Eric Cardi had originally pled not guilty to his charges, but his lawyer fell ill during the trial, causing the judge to declare a mistrial against Eric. After the other four were convicted, Eric chose to avoid trial by taking a plea deal that landed him an 18-year sentence with the possibility of parole after nine years. So this was interesting because all five of them were tried at the same time under the same trial. And I get why they did that. It's it's cheaper, it's easier, the jury just connect all the dots. They don't have to figure out separately what each person's involvement was in this case. But because all five of them went to trial together, because all five of them pled not guilty, this mistrial because of Eric's lawyer getting ill, he's able to step back and basically gets a preview of what's gonna to happen to him when he's going to be put forth to a second trial and after he sees his four co-conspirators all get convicted of first degree murder and get life in prison with a mandatory parole period of 25 years he's going to say well that's pretty much you know the best deal i'm going to get if i go to trial let's see what i can get out of a plea deal the plea deal gets him this 18 year sentence and possibly a parole after nine years so he basically is able to cut almost two-thirds of his sentence off by taking that plea deal. And in addition to her lengthy prison sentence, the judge ordered that Jennifer could never again contact members of her family or Daniel Wong. She was sent to federal Canadian prison for women in Ontario. Three of the men, Daniel, David, and Lenford, were housed at federal prisons in Canada. Eric Carty was eventually sent to Kent Prison in British Columbia, where he died in his cell in April of 2018. In May of 2023, the convictions for first-degree murder against the four surviving suspects were vacated after an appeals court found the trial judge erred in jury instructions during the trial. The judge told the jury they could only find each defendant guilty of first-degree murder via either a planned murder or as the result of a botched home invasion. And according to legal sources online, the judge should have instructed the jury that they could also find individual members of the plot guilty of lesser crimes, such as second-degree murder or manslaughter. This error meant that Jennifer and the three remaining suspects will likely either have to be tried again or given the chance to accept a plea deal. As they all receive life sentences for the attempted murder of Han, they will remain in jail, but without murder convictions, they could be eligible for parole much earlier. And the government of Canada is asking its Supreme Court to overturn the appeal court decision and return the guilty convictions against the four convicts. So this was just kind of an interesting after effect. Obviously, this just happened a few months back, uh, This the appeal court ruling. And so when I'm reading it, one thing one of the legal experts said is they don't know if the Supreme Court's going to even look at this because it's seemed to be a pretty clear violation uh, by the judge. Uh, basically, the jury should have had the chance to 
look at each individual person and determine because there's only a couple of the guys that were put on trial were actually present for the murders. The other guys were either setting up the murders or had other involvement. And so the jury must have felt like it was an all or nothing deal. Either you find everybody guilty of first degree murder or you find nobody. And according to Canadian law, that's not how it's supposed to work. However, some of the legal experts also said it's very difficult. This was a 10 month trial with over 50 witnesses and judges are told to try to keep things simple for the jury. The jury's got a lot to digest throughout the trial in terms of information and their role and all that kind of stuff. So according to this, some of these legal experts, judges for years have been told by the appellate courts and other courts to keep things as simple as possible for the juries. However, in this case, it was a very complicated case and I think the judge was just trying to simplify things and as a result they may have overstepped the simplification to the point that it was a violation. So it'll be interesting to see a if the Supreme Court of Canada even looks at it because they can obviously decide not to review it at which point the appeals decision would stand and there either have to be a a retrial or a plea deal offered to to Jennifer and the others, or if they do look at it, I guess they could always rule that the judge gave appropriate decisions, which would then put these convictions back in place, or they could rule that the judge's instructions were not a good decision, at which point that would formally vacate these convictions. So it'll just be interesting to see what uh, the Canadian Supreme Court does with this. And again, it's it's often tough because it's not really the fault of the police, the investigators, crime scene technicians, or even the prosecutors in this case. In reality, it's, it's just a, a simple, probably couple minutes of instructions from the judge can vacate an entire 10-month uh, trial conviction. So again, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. But Little is known about Han Pan's current life. He told the courts that on the evening of his wife's murder, he lost both his wife and his daughter. It's reported that Felix moved to the east coast of Canada for work and Han moved out of the house and was living with relatives. He has never fully recovered from the injuries and trauma he experienced that evening. Sadly, it was revealed that after Jennifer was caught in all of her lies, she was given a choice. She could remain a member of the family leaving Daniel and follow the rules or she could leave the family and pursue a life with Daniel. While I understand this was a lose-lose choice for her, I can't help but wonder what would have happened if she had chosen to live with Daniel and why didn't she make that choice. It was said she was close to her mother and brother, so it's possible she did not want to lose certain family members, but at the end of the day it was actually her mother that was killed and her family was lost to her in a few foolish attempt to gain her independence and some money to start a new life. And that's where, again, I circled back to that major crossroad in Jennifer's life. When all of these lies are discovered, she has two options according to her family. One, she can go live her life without any rules or supervision, but she's not a part of the family anymore. And I, again, I get that's a lose-lose situation. That's a terrible choice somebody has to make. 
But if she wanted that, ultimately in the end, if she wanted to be able to live with no rules, if she wanted to be able to date Daniel, and there's nothing saying that after a few years and she figures things out on her own, she was still young at the time, making mistakes, maybe she chooses on her own to get her high school degree, go to college, maybe she's able to mend those relationships with her family, or the choice that she made, which was to go stay with her family and focus on getting her life back together. You know, she tried to live again in both worlds. And again, I understand that she's young and she's making this terribly difficult choice, but ultimately she falls right back into trying to you know, have her cake and eat it too. In this case, she's, she still wants to date Daniel. She still wants to have this freedom to live without the rules, but she's going to still live with her family. So I just look back and say, if she had made a different choice and she just decided she was done after, I think at that point is 22, 23 years of this oppressive rule, she wanted to go live with Daniel. If she had made that choice, and if in reality she really I don't see how she didn't have that choice. And that's that's the other thing people struggle with in this story is in your typical Western family situation, there's a lot of the times issues when a 18, 19, 20 plus year old lives at home. They don't want to live under rules because they're an adult, but their parents are paying the mortgage. Their parents are often providing them with money to support bills they're putting food on the table and it gets into this real issue of whether or not you know this 19 20 plus year old child who is now adult has to follow rules put in place by their parents and oftentimes when there is that issue at hand there are some major problems so i've always said i always told people when i was a police officer and dealing with people who are complaining about their adult sons or daughters living at home with them is as humans at least from my experience teenagers late teens early 20s were designed to go out and make mistakes and learn and there's not very many people I know of my friends or anybody that that went out on their own in their early 20s late teens and didn't make mistakes, didn't fall on their face from time to time financially or criminally get something like a DWI and have to figure that out. And that's just part of that growth and learning process. And I think the longer somebody stays at home living with their parents, the more that process is stunted. And I think in the case of of Jennifer and the way that the relationship she had with her parents, again, I think that had a major major part in the story but at the end of the day a lot of kids have issues with their parents don't want to follow the rules kids even like i said being adults and uh, thankfully cases like this are the extreme rarity but that is the case of the pan family thank you guys for listening stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at productions at gmail.com you can also find me at productions on facebook and support me via patreon at productions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.